Hey, y'all, how's it going? Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm just uh, writing up a little bit of a blog entry here about today's show. Posting on liberty.me. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show. And at my blog, Stress. ScottHorton.org slash Stress. Alright. So, uh, yeah, just got a reminder of my email, so I'll remind you too. Uh, I'll be on Ernie Hancock's show tomorrow morning. I do every Friday with Ernie. Um, from 11, no, from 10 to 11 Eastern time before my show here on LRN. Do Sunday mornings on 90.7 KPFK in LA, the biggest FM transmitter, the most powerful FM transmitter west of the Mississippi River. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And, uh, yeah, here weekdays at LRN.FM. Uh, join up the chat room if you want. ScottHorton.org slash chat. Hey guys, how's things? Looks like most of the usual suspects are in there. The rest are, uh, soon to join, I'm sure. ScottHorton.org slash chat. If you're interested in that, just a fake name and a captcha and you're in there. Try to keep my left eyeball pointed toward the chat room during the show as best I can. And, uh, yeah, man. Anyway, uh, oh, it's also an IRC free node chat room. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. If you want to, uh, yeah. use an external chat application. Alright, um, yeah, man. So, I'm Scott. It's my show. Uh, I got a good couple of interviews, uh, coming up. Jeff Bachman wrote a really great thing about, um, the war in Libya, the last one, not the new one. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the new one too. Um, it's Jeff Bachman wrote this thing for common dreams and you know, articles about, Hey man, what about the Libya war 2011? They're getting to be a dime a dozen, which is good. And thank God for that, man. You know, um, that's what we need is, uh, overabundance of those. Uh, but this one was particularly good. I wanted to make it the spotlight, but we just had too many good articles to make the spotlight this week on antiwar.com. But we're running it, I don't know, yesterday or today or something we ran as a viewpoint on antiwar.com. It's really good. Revisiting the humanitarian war in Libya. So uh, that'll be Jeff Bachman coming up on the show. I don't believe I've ever spoken with him before. Uh, so that'll be good. And, oh, that's interesting too. And guess what, everybody? Will Grigg is going to be on the show today. Yay, Will! Uh, it's been a little while since we spoke with Will Grigg. Well, he didn't have a microphone. Or he had one, but it was broken or something happened. I don't know. But anyway, he's got his microphone fixed. So now it's on. Um, the great Will Grigg, and he's going to be on to talk about the execution of Lavoy Finicum. At the end of that Montana standoff there, 
There's new information that came out. You may have seen the headlines last week where, oops, wait a minute. Never mind the state troopers involved. The FBI's hostage rescue team took a couple of unauthorized pot shots at Finicum. Apparently they uh, were not the kill shots, but they were, you know, first use of force, giving him reason then to attempt to defend himself, which then, of course, in that wonderful Israeli style, the retaliation becomes the excuse for aggression. Stop resisting, stop resisting, bang, bang, bang. So to speak. And so, uh, well, anyway, not to ruin it for you or anything, but the heroic Will Grigg is going to be on the air to tell you about what's right and what's not right. About what happened there, factually and morally, too. The heroic William Norman Grigg, my good friend and uh, yours, too. All right, now, I don't know what's up with my goddamn uh, email correspondence. It's one of the problems of having such a big country is that people on the West Coast, why, they live so far from here, it's earlier in the day, and sometimes it's just difficult to get in touch with people, but I was hoping to talk with Ramsey Baru today. Um, but that may be put off till tomorrow, unfortunately, but Ramsey Baroud's written an important piece. I'm pretty sure we're running today. I'm hit refresh on this thing. Ramsey Baroud about, uh, BDS. Why BDS Can't Lose by Ramsey Baroud. It's on antiwar.com right now. Oh, good. And there's Bachman's piece too. And, uh, Steven Zunis's piece that we interviewed him about yesterday about Honduras. They're all there in the viewpoint section today on antiwar.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and then Patrick has the spotlight, so yeah. Man. Uh, you know, man, it's too bad about Ramsey because I'd have given that spot to Patrick Coburn, but let's see if maybe I can get one or the other or both of them for tomorrow anyway. Really need to hear from Patrick about Syria now, don't we? Unfortunately, um... He was busy traveling yesterday and was uh, unable to do it. Anyway, um, yeah, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Um, More news headlines on the other side of this break, but I guess we'll just wrap up this segment with Eli Lake today. Now, it's true that any assertion of fact by Eli Lake is suspect, although in this case it seems like, you know, it's probably right. Like when he identified that secret CIA JSOC prison in Somalia. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing he'd make up. <clears throat> you know, because it would contrast with his confirmation bias that all this national security state stuff is great. So check it out. Ted Cruz is announcing his national security advisory team. And guess who's on it? Frank Gaffney. Elliot Abrams, and Michael Ledeen. Michael freaking Ledeen. Uh, I thought that he had retired. I mean, I know he simply got fired from the National Review and from the American Enterprise Institute. So, what, is he slumming around with uh, Gaffney now at the Center for Security Policy? You have to understand, these are the loons of the lunatic neocon movement. Ledeen, of course, um, 
you know, plays the role of half writer, pseudo intellectual advocate of fascism. And, uh, and yet also apparatchik in the government. He was a contract worker in the Office of Special Plans in 2002, lying us into war, helped arrange all the meetings in Rome with Manitur Gorbanifar, where they were attempting to set up Iran and Iraq for uh, possession of nuclear materials, etc., back in 2001. And um, so, uh, yeah, man, Ladine. Uh, I should have got all my Ladine clips ready. I got, Oh, you know what? I do have my iTunes open. Let me see if... Uh, I got Ladine in here because there's some good ones I have in my World War Four folder here. Let's see, because Iran is mother. Iran. <laughs> Iran is mother. You ever wonder what Michael Ladine's problem is? Well, we should have started with Iran because Iran is mother. Iran, ever since the State Department's been keeping a list of state sponsors of international terrorism, Iran has always won. The blue ribbon. It's what America exists for. We should be supporting people who want freedom against people who want tyranny. We are a vast, if you like it, revolutionary, if you don't like it, destabilizing force in the world. We destabilize the world every day. And our only real choice in foreign policy is how to change the world, not whether to change the world. Hey, I'll Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to the Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at CommodityDiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash CommodityDiscs. And thanks. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, so as long as I'm playing them, a couple more clips of Michael Ledeen from the documentary World War Four. We're not very good at foreign policy, typically. We are really good at war. You know, Americans like war. And the war against the terror masters, the terror masters are states. Because I don't believe that you can have a really dangerous terrorist organization without a base in a state that sponsors them. Those terror masters are at war with us. That's why we're fighting, because they attacked us. As long as those tyrants exist in the Middle East, they will um, arm, aid, train, support terrorists who are going to come and kill us wherever they can, including... Des Moines. Right. Why are people who advocate revolution called conservative? Right. I don't know. Beats me. But in this case, it was created out of whole cloth. It was the diplomatic fig leaf. Basically, what happened was that foreign leaders, above all Blair, were told by their lawyers 
that if they went to war alongside us in Iraq without a United Nations resolution, they could later be prosecuted as war criminals. So that's why we went to the UN, and that's why the WMDs became the central issue in the diplomatic run-up to the war. There you go. What a great admission right there, huh? That's going in the book. I'd forgotten about that quote. I like explaining that very same thing, but it's fun to have it in Michael Ledeen's words. Tony Blair, there's no law here, but they were worried. Tony Blair and his people were worried that they might go to prison for war crimes. So they made it all about the weapons and defiance of U.N. resolutions in order to try to dress it up as somehow legal. So they could create their boiling cauldron in the Middle East. Faster, please, cried Michael Ledeen, as he helped to engineer the war. Anyway, so here's Ledeen and Elliot Abrams, who, of course, was um, also in the first Bush Jr. administration uh, as a convicted and then pardoned Iran-Contra felon from before that, of course, at the Council on Foreign Relations now. And uh, Elliot Abrams, he's the guy who, in the second Bush term, uh, worked with Liz Cheney in the State Department to do all the democracy promotion in Egypt. And wherever else, by democracy promotion, of course, that's weasel words for, uh, that's PR terms for destabilization programs. Well, what we'll do is we'll just expedite the chaotic collapse and see what happens, guys. Don't try to think ahead, you know. That could be problematic. Anyway, so there's Abrams and Ladine, who both uh, helped lie us into war. And then Frank Gaffney, who always claims that he was the Undersecretary of Defense, but he was never confirmed by the Congress. He was never actually in the Reagan administration. He was just a hanger-on. I know that from Gordon Prather, who was the chief scientist of the Army at the time and and knew about these neocons and, and watched them, um, you know, weaseling all their way uh, their ways into all these appointed positions in the Reagan years for the first time. Uh, saw it himself. Anyway, um, so Frank Gaffney is most well known now for the completely ridiculous propaganda theme that somehow Iran could take a simple atom bomb that they don't have and shoot one of them into space above the United States somehow, which would then short, permanently short, Every circuit in America, it would be an EMP blast that would destroy every piece of electronics in our entire society, which would lead to a hundred years of darkness and 90% death rate of the American population as we enter a new dark age. I mean, how quote unquote conservative do you have to be? To have no other facts in your brain that can tell you how stupid and wrong that is. Well, Jesus, Frank Gaffney tells me I should be afraid of that. I guess I should then, huh? I mean, grown adult human beings. Adults believe this crap. Again, Gordon Prather, former chief scientist of the Army, former hydrogen bomb manufacturer at Sandia and Lawrence Livermore. He says, if an atom bomb, a fission bomb, is close enough to you to turn out your lights... Yeah, you don't need to worry about the electricity so much because you're dead anyway. It's only specially enhanced, commonly known as neutron bombs. 
enhanced radiation bombs that are set to create more uh, gamma rays than heat in their explosions, which are, you know, were developed for a time. The idea was to intercept Soviet ICBMs in space and blast them with radiation and knock out all their electronics. As Gordon says, that's the only missile defense that could possibly work. But anyway, neutron bombs, specially radiation-enhanced thermonuclear fusion bombs at just the right spot, and many of them, at just the right spot above the ionosphere uh, can cause an EMP. But that's something that Iran could do only in Frank Gaffney's imagination and the imagination of the adult literally grown human Americans who are stupid enough to think that, well, gee, he cited a congressional report or something. Come on, let's all be afraid, everyone, and vote Republican. For Christ's sake. And then, of course, he's also one of the leaders of the professional misinformation, disinformation establishment on the issue of Muslim Americans and Sharia law, and the idea that the three or five million American Muslims are somehow all conspiring together against the rest of us to enslave us under their Quran or some crap. Give us a break, for God's sake. But hey, you know, I heard that the state governments are passing laws to prevent the takeover of Sharia, so I guess that's a thing, huh? No, it's just propaganda. There is no takeover of Sharia anything. It's just the same as Catholics and Jews being able to invoke their religious traditions in divorce proceedings and issues like that that are respected by the courts. It has nothing to do with forcing Sharia on anyone who is not Islamic or violating anyone's constitutional rights in any sense. But, oh no, you know what? Catholics and Jews ought to have their traditions respected, but not Muslims, because, I don't know, Frank Gaffney said that all the lights will go out and we'll all starve to death. This is Ted Cruz's foreign policy advisor. Frank Gaffney. Uh, one of the leaders, and you can read, uh, Eli Clifton, I think, is uh, my hero on this, and there are others. In fact, i got a brand new book about this that I haven't cracked into yet, but um, Eli Clifton has done uh, multiple studies of this, and, and in fact, Max Blumenthal did a great one, too. In fact, it's in the emails that Max Blumenthal's father, Sidney Blumenthal, sent to Hillary Clinton. Man, you really ought to read this article, and it's a excellent article. It's one that I interviewed Max about when he wrote it for Tom Dispatch. It's called Fear, Inc., and it's about a bunch of, guess what, Likudnik Zionists who put Israel first, who are hell-bent on making Americans hate and fear Muslims under any excuse because it j- helps generate support for Israel. Simple as that. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State. The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought the War State and paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show.
Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. All right. Um, so, yeah, man, um, let me talk a little bit about uh, Hillary Clinton here. Didn't get a chance to get to this yesterday because I got all diverted off on the Oklahoma bombing case, but... Um, well, here's part of it, anyway, if I can get uh, Mozilla to play this YouTube correctly for us here. See? Sorry, I don't have it queued up. Um, it's Chris Matthews and Hillary and Clinton. And now we've got to support the... What do you the think, people? quickly, of the whole history of the United States in your lifetime of knocking off leaders, whether it's Mossadegh in, uh, in uh, Iran, or it was Arbenz in Guatemala, or knocking off Allende in Chile, or knocking off Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, or knocking off Trujillo, or who else have I missed? I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. That's why I'm skeptical. But you're not, you, what is your yeah. view of all those assassinations, yeah, all those I, attempts look, I, to change the history of other countries? Should we be doing that kind of thing? Well, I don't think... Knocking in, off leaders. In the vast... Um, CM, we knocked him off. In the vast majority of cases, the answer is no. But, you know, there's always these historical games you can play. If somebody could have assassinated Hitler before he took over Germany, Germany, would that have been a good thing or not? You cannot paint with a broad brush. Individual situations, and most of the ones you named, are ones that I think in retrospect did not have a very uh, defensible uh, kind of uh, calculation behind them. But I think it's a mistake to say you can't ever you know, prevent war. You can't ever save people. You know, if there had been a way to uh, go after the leaders uh, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the massacres in Rwanda to stop that before 800,000 people were killed, what would we have done? We do, as you know very well, uh, target terrorists. We target them because we believe that they are plotting and planning against us, our friends, and our allies. Dude, I, I'm sorry. There's just so many lies. I'm going to lose track of, you know, how to hang on to all of them. First of all, he names a dozen, and then she goes straight to Adolf Hitler. Yeah, but Chris, what if you could go in a time machine and explode Hitler? Uh, yeah, but he just named a dozen of them, and notice they were all tiny, pathetic, weak little countries that could never attack us. I mean, no offense to the people from them, but in terms of the power of their political governments to mess with ours? Are you kidding me? Uh, so that to me, and plus just the fact that she doesn't say, yeah, no, you're right, man, it's a problem. Her entire position is she's got to defend this. Well, geez, Chris, you know, you're right most of the time. But, 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 but. And then she switches to terrorists who are plotting to attack us. And yet, correct me when I go off the story here. But the war is against terrorists who already have attacked the United States, members of groups 
that have already attacked the United States and that we supposedly are at war with. And she wants to go, oh, yeah, but you know what? Whenever I create whole new groups of terrorists, like, say, in Libya and Mali, well, we have to target them, too, even though they never did anything to us. They're just the result of what we did to them. But anyway. So Chris Matthews is saying, is it right to overthrow the governments in Iran and Chile and Guatemala and Vietnam and et cetera, et cetera? Notice he doesn't say Honduras on your watch, lady. He doesn't say Muammar Gaddafi that you pushed that war and it would have never happened if it wasn't for you. And by the way, before this was the part about the Iraq war, which she supported and which she justified literally by saying, well, George Bush promised $20 billion for New York. She was the senator from New York. Chris Matthews has her. How did you? Well, we'll get back to that in a second. Now, they may not be a head of state, but they are very well the head of a terrorist group. So these are tough, hard choices. That's why I wrote a whole book called Hard Choices about this. It looks like you're ready for the role of commander in chief already. (laughs) Anyway, back with more of our special MSNBC town hall with Hillary Clinton. (laughs) And that look on her face, Jesus. And you know what? F you, all you Hillary voters out there doing your best to inflict this person on this country and the planet Earth. How dare you? Are you insane? I mean, I understand, hate, hate, hate the Republicans. Believe me, I'm, I'm there with you. But for God's sake, you gotta be that binary about it. And by the way, you think she is the stronger candidate than Sanders in the general election? You're insane to think that. You're stupid to think that. If that's your calculation. She is an absolute nightmare. Assuming you're a Democrat and want the Democrats to win. She's the worst possible candidate that you could put forward. The only reason she looks strong is because everybody pulls their punches. But just look at what Chris Matthews... She doesn't know what to do when Chris Matthews barely, sort of, kind of gets to her problem. And then at the end, he just laughs it off. Well, looks like you're ready to be commander-in-chief. Yeah, she sure as hell is, isn't she? And she says that just put in 2016, just for this year. Hillary Clinton, commander-in-chief... In 2016, she says that over and over again. I'm ready to be the commander-in-chief. You know, I'm ready to at least hear some lies about how you want to promise me a return to normalcy. Donald Trump says, we're going to blast the crap out of Iraq, but then at some point we've got to stop and rebuild our own society and leave the world alone. Even Trump says that. And, you know, they put a trial balloon out the other day where she said she didn't want to give away too much, but she is preparing a strategy to attack Donald Trump over what he will do to our standing in the world. In simple terms, she is going to attack Donald Trump from the right on the world empire. Oh, Donald Trump wants to pull the troops out of Korea, Japan and Germany. Then what might happen? And then he's going to say, yeah, that's right. And you think the American people ought to continue to pay everybody else's way forever. And he's going to destroy her. I don't even know if he'll have to bring up Yemen. At some point, someone is going to tell him to say, Hillary gave so much money and weapons to Yemen that their dictator became so bad 
that the people tried to overthrow him. But instead of letting them overthrow him, Hillary installed a new dictator, which led directly to a war that's the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. Even Donald Trump could memorize that line. Hillary did a regime change in Yemen that led to the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. 100% her responsibility. Show him, Hillary. Show him the ballot with one man's name on it. Mansour Hadi. You Democrat, you. And then back to her excuse. Her words. Her excuse for voting for the Iraq war had nothing to do with, well, I believe that he was making chemical weapons to kill us with at all. Well, they told me he was friends with Osama. None of that. You know what she says? I need $20 billion. I, I'm sitting there in the Oval Office and Bush says to me, what do you need? And I said, I need $20 billion to rebuild, you know, New York. And he said, you got it. And he was good to his word. Uh, what? That was it. That was it. She didn't say a thing about the national security of the United States whatsoever. She didn't say a thing about, well, I thought that once America did the Shia the big favor of overthrowing Saddam for them, that they would take our side against Iran. Because that's what Richard Pearl said would happen. <laughs> or anything. Bush gave me a bribe. And I took it. Is Hillary Clinton's excuse for obliterating in her words, her words on what she would do to Iran, uh, the entire Middle East. No, less Iran, I guess. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back. You know, I forgot, man, I wasn't done with this Hillary on Iraq thing here, too. I can't get the MSNBC video to play right. I guess they're still using Flash. I got Mozilla. Uh, no, but I couldn't make it work in Chrome, either. And I couldn't find the right clip on the MSNBC site. It's just embedded in this thing. Anyway, point being, check out this damned lie. Especially you Democrats. I want you to pretend that it's a Republican saying this for one moment, okay? Saddam Hussein could have ended it immediately. He could have said, come anywhere, look anywhere, we have nothing. But he didn't choose to do that. And then, in a complete non-sequitur, unbelievable, this, the chutzpah of this woman. Remember, at the end of the first Gulf War, we did find evidence of a nuclear weapons program. 
Yeah, well, that was in 1991. So what does that have to do with anything? In 2001, it was a known, established fact that they did not have a nuclear weapons program. Who does she think she is? Donald Trump trying to wave a little red flag over here to draw our attention away? Now all of a sudden we're all stuck in her same little Hitler time machine and we get to skip her husband's administration in the 1990s when the UN inspectors, the IAEA and UNSCOM and UNMOVIC had complete and total run of that place. Oh, yeah, no. Hey, everybody, let's pretend Saddam Hussein has a chemical weapons factory underneath his palace. That way, you know, because that's the one place he won't let us look. So that must be where he keeps his sarin and mustard gas. These were the lies the Republicans and Hillary Clinton were left with before the war in 2003. We just talked last week on the show about how the ladies from Code Pink bravely went to Iraq and met with the weapons inspectors there and came back and confronted Hillary Clinton in her office. We ran the article by Medea Benjamin on antiwar.com that included the YouTube of them confronting her and saying, listen, we talked with the weapons inspectors. They can't find anything, and they're going to coordinates handed to them by the Americans. The Americans are saying, go here, here, and here. And the inspectors are saying there's nothing there. And, of course, we also know from James Risen's work in the New York Times that Saddam Hussein had his top diplomats summon Richard Pearl, who they knew to be the ringleader of Dick Cheney's separate government that he created inside uh, the Bush administration. That's Colin Powell's term for it, the separate government. Fife's Gestapo office in the Pentagon and uh, the axis of Cheney and Libby and Pearl in the Pentagon and the vice president's office. And anyway, they summoned Richard Pearl to England and they said, we swear to God, man, if this is about oil, we'll let's negotiate mineral rights. If this is really about weapons of mass destruction of any kind, you can send in your army, your CIA, your FBI to go anywhere you want and search anything you want. If this is about democracy, like Wolfowitz keeps saying, then we'll hold elections, goddammit. Just don't invade. We will do anything you say. And yes, no, really, in fact, here, let's make sure and look it up in the New York Times for you right now so that we have it. It's Ryzen NY Times Saddam Pearl, that's P-E-R-L-E, London, that should do it. There you go. Iraq said to have tried to reach last minute deal to avert war. James Ryzen, New York Times, November 6, 2003. So never even mind that he gave his entire dossier to the United Nations. Never mind that he let the U.N. inspectors go anywhere. He said you can send in the army, not as an invasion, but as welcome guests. With the CIA and the FBI, and you can look anywhere you want, we've got no weapons of mass destruction. We're making none. It's not true. And here, this is what Hillary Clinton is left to defend. Saddam refused to let inspectors in? God damn liar. Liar. 
And this is a woman who was married to the former president who knew good and well that they didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. He ordered Madeleine Albright, his secretary of state, Bill Clinton did, to um, to uh, preempt and interrupt and, and uh, sabotage. The United Nation, uh, uh, United Nations decision by Rolf Eckius, the head of, I think, UNSCOM, or maybe it was UNMOVIC, I forget, uh, to declare Iraq weapons of mass destruction free. And they said, ah, 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 nope, it doesn't matter because the sanctions will never be lifted as long as Saddam is in power. The sanctions are no longer about weapons of mass destruction, and now they're about uh, Saddam staying in power, and so forget you. And that was in 97. In fact, Andrew Coburn broke that story on this show before he wrote it. He had that from Rolf Eckius all about how that went down. And anyway, so there you go. That's Hillary Clinton's excuse for the war is that George W. Bush gave your money to bail out a bunch of billionaires on Wall Street. And that was her bribe to support it. Oh, and by the way, here's a bunch of lies about how Saddam wouldn't let the inspectors back in. And hey, if that's good enough for Chris Matthews, that'll be good enough for you, right? Unbelievable. I can't believe that people are actually leaving their house to support Hillary Clinton to be the president of anything. You've got to be kidding me. I just can't understand it. I mean, I know they don't tell you the truth about the Libya war and stuff, but I do. (laughs) Nobody listens to me. But, man, I don't know. Anyway, coming up, Jeff Bachman is going to do a hell of a job on the Libya war. He wrote a great piece on the Libya war, revisiting the humanitarian intervention in Libya for common dreams. It's really great. Hope you'll read it. I hope you'll pass it around. It's got, uh, you know, it's not just a retelling. It's got some real good stuff in it. Um, and then Will Gregg, our good friend Will Gregg, is going to be on about the police state. Oh, and let me say one thing, man, that I keep meaning to talk about, and maybe I don't talk about enough, but... um. I'm from Texas. I'm almost 40 now. I'm like 39 and a half or something like that. So that's my era and whatever. And I was raised around mostly white Protestants, I guess, in the neighborhood, my friends' parents and whatever, the people in my neighborhood. Nobody ever said the N-word. They just didn't. And they didn't mean it. It's not like they stifled themselves. They just weren't bigots. And they didn't talk bad about Jews either. They just didn't. And maybe people would assume that that's not true, that if you're from Texas and you grew up in the 70s and 80s and whatever, of course, white people are racist against whatever group I'm a member of or whatever. It's just not true. They didn't call people spicks or wetbacks or whatever either. They just didn't. It wasn't like that. And I don't mean that no one was racist at all or they didn't have any prejudicial feelings or whatever, but I'm just saying it was certainly not acceptable for people to behave as though that's the way they felt if you want to put it that way they just didn't do it and i think it's a huge setback for the united states of america for our society right now what donald trump is doing where he's willing to pick on basically politically powerless people as though they're jeb bush he beats the shit out of Jeb Bush, and we laugh our asses off, because who deserves to be beaten more than Jeb Bush? Punk him again, Donald. Punk him again, man. It's great. I'll I cheer that. But then a protester disrupts his rally, and he goes, These are the people who are destroying America. Yeah, no, they're not. They are not. They're the victims of the U.S. world empire, just like everybody else. That's who they are. 
And, and, uh, you know, Sheldon Richmond had a great piece about, oh, it's on antiwar.com today. Donald Trump's toxic, aggrieved nation shtick. Sorry, USA is the bully. And the U.S. government and the people with the most money and the most political power in America, they are the bullies. If Trump has any value, it's supposed to be being, as he portrays it, being the bully on behalf of the little guy. Finally, you have someone strong enough to take them on for you. In me, he says. But then he turns right around and says, the problem is the Muslims. We're going to have to start investigating their mosques and maybe close down their mosques and maybe keep databases of who all is a Muslim and prevent Muslims from coming into America. And the problem is the Mexicans. Not the Mexican government so much for whatever, enforcing George W. Bush and Barack Obama's drug war and destroying that society and driving their population as refugees into ours. No, nothing like that. It's the poor, powerless... Uh, you know, house framer who's tearing our country apart from within. And that shit is evil and it's disgusting. And whatever role Soros and move on and whatever have in backing the protesters, shame on them. But whatever protesters are standing up against that for what it is, hooray for them. They are the heroes that we need to stand up against that kind of demagoguery in this country. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show, here on the Liberty Radio Network, live on the weekdays, noon to 2 Eastern Time, scotthorton.org, et cetera, et cetera, like that. All right, next up is Jeff, no, first up today, Jeff Bachman. He is Professor of Human Rights and Co-Director of Ethics, Peace, and Global Affairs at American University's School of international service. And he's the author of this article at Common Dreams, Revisiting the Humanitarian Intervention in Libya. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to have you here. And uh, I'm happy to say that there's a little bit of revisionist history finally coming out about the Libya war, uh, reminding people about just what happened there and providing a bit of context. But uh, I'm happy to say that yours really stands out among them uh, as far as, well, I just like the way you know, which arguments you make and how you incorporate them here. It's a, it's a very good job you did. Thank you. Uh, revisiting the humanitarian, quote-unquote, quote, there, yeah. ironic uh, quotes, um, intervention in Libya. Again, commondreams.org here. And I guess today's the day, right? Five years ago today, you write, March 17, 2011, the U.N. Security Council adopted Resolution 1973, authorizing what exactly, I'll ask you in just a second, but... The point there being that under international law, under the U.N. Charter, it's illegal to start a war unless the U.N. Security Council says that you can. And that's what happened, sort of, or not? Sort of. Um, I, I mean, it, it authorized uh, you know, the use of military force or all necessary means uh, for the prediction, I'm sorry, for the protection of the civilian population of Libya. And I should note there that it did not specify uh, civilian supporters of the rebels or of the Qaddafi regime, 
which I think is another element that I didn't include in my piece, which you know we can always come back to, is that you know the intervention was more concerned with uh, supporting the rebels and you know therefore uh, also protecting the supporters of the rebels. Uh, whereas the Qaddafi supporters, you know, who have every right to their right to life and uh, physical integrity and everything else, um, whose lives I don't think were uh, seen as important as the others. Uh, but the, you know, go back to the question, um, the argument that I make um, is that the the intervention clearly exceeded the mandate and also went beyond anything that could be described as, you know, again, quote-unquote, humanitarian intervention. And at that point, once you exceed the mandate of what was authorized, then you actually are stepping into uh, the area of, a, of an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you about uh, back then, if you remember or if you have, you know, facts that you could report about back then, was, was there really any... Um, you know, denial of this fact back then at the time, because certainly on this show, it was easy to see the logical dominoes that fall down. It's only a matter of, you know, two plus two equals four here. If the people of Benghazi are not safe from Gaddafi, then that means from, you know, the interventionist logic, they never will be until Gaddafi is gone. And so a vote to protect them with a no-fly zone is a vote for regime change in Tripoli. As simple as that. It was obvious in the first place, wasn't it? Sure. Uh, and, you know, this this actually got, um, you know, the intervention itself connects to sort of the responsibility to protect movement. And, you know, this is an issue that, say, R2P advocates and scholars have sort of tackled with is, is regime change also justified under R2P? Is it only for civilian protection? And then it gets at the question, if the regime intends to, uh, you know, kill civilians, then to protect them, is the change in regime necessary? But I think the, you know, a related question is, you know, whether Qaddafi was actually, I mean, I don't want, you know, just to head off some of the, you know, sympathizer type, you know, statements that some might say, you know, I'm not in any way condoning uh, Qaddafi's rule. Um, but the the facts on the ground appear to show that he was not indiscriminately attacking civilians, that he was actually dealing with a violent uprising, one that was maybe peaceful for the first couple of days. Um, and that also, you know, he his threats were aimed at the the rebels in Benghazi. Um, and then, you know, I quoted Cooperman in my piece, Alan Cooperman, mm-hmm. who's at Texas A&M, uh, who sh- who you know, wrote about how um, you know the number of civilians that were killed in Misrata before um, the intervention occurred. You know, the it's it's not uh, it doesn't demonstrate indiscriminate use of force or intentional targeting of civilians. So if NATO slash U.S., if the intervention was actually under false pretenses, as Cooperman argues, then right from the start we're actually uh, the humanitarian um, you know, justification for the war uh, does not stand. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we know from uh, reporting by Jeffrey Scott Shapiro and Kelly Riddell in the Washington Times from a year ago that the CIA and the DIA told Hillary Clinton and, and Obama and the administration know on certain terms that the whole Benghazi Casas belly was fake, and they went along with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, you know, I have that. I quote that one email that we've seen released, where um, I forget what the uh, the individual's name was, but writing to at the time Secretary of State Clinton that the humanitarian justification was of a limited nature and is is in, in the past at this point. At, so, and this was at the end of March. So we know within two weeks Benghazi had been secured, or the security had been provided, but the intervention continued, and NATO. I mean. 
you know, 1973, the resolution built off of Resolution 1970, which already called for an arms embargo. And members of NATO, you know, armed the rebels. Um, you know, I, as I noted in my thing by my piece, by middle of May, 14,000 airstrikes had been launched. I mean, this was not civilian protection. This was clearly, uh, um, you know, an act of war uh, on behalf of the the rebels in Libya. Mm-hmm. Well. Let me ask you this. I mean, uh, I'm no lawyer. That's the other Scott Horton has all the law degrees and everything like that. But it seems to me like if a president says that he started a war based on a eh, 51 to 49 percent shrug, then that in itself is admissions of war crimes. Is it not to start a war based on what almost half of you is willing to admit is not a good enough reason? Sure. I mean, I, I don't want to call that specifically a war crime, but I, what I would say is, I mean, it, it sounds again to me like what I'm, what I'm arguing, which is it's, it's launching a war of aggression, which is which is itself is a crime. Yeah. Um, you know, but isn't and, you that know, an admission? To... That sounds to me like an admission. You know, I barely decided to do it, but then Hillary said, "Come on," so I said, "All right." Right, I was I was coaxed into it <laughs> yeah. to begin with, and then you know, and then to now in the this recent Atlantic piece to you know to blame it on Europe. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty disingenuous to uh, to go and say, well, I thought they would you know deal with the aftermath. Well, I mean, we can't even deal with the aftermath until we you know talk honestly about the intervention itself, and then certainly look at if you look at what would be became in the immediate aftermath of the intervention, and certainly what we see now. I mean, there's arguably a failed state, and you know whether Gaddafi again was a good ruler or not. The state of Libya would be a very different place today if the intervention had not gone forward. Yeah, well, and back to the timeline because you know it's pretty easy, uh, you know, for a Clinton defender to say, yeah, yeah, hindsight twenty twenty, this, that, and the other thing. But as as you mentioned, and it, it's made clear in your article here, you have the date. It's March twenty seventh of two thousand eleven. And there is uh, Sidney Blumenthal uh, informing Clinton that, well, one rebel commander told me his troops continue to summarily execute all foreign mercenaries in the fighting. And f- by foreign mercenaries, of course, they mean any blacks that they capture. Right. Migrant workers. Yeah. Yeah. And this yeah. is and this is March. So and and again, back to the Washington Times series, we know that there were ongoing efforts by the CIA and the military to thwart the State Department and try to negotiate. But that she refused even, you know, once the war started, hey, FDR would say unconditional surrender, man. We don't stop until Gaddafi is, um, you know, violated and shot in the side of the head. Absolutely, and as I noted in my piece, yeah, you know, and when I uh, there was multiple ceasefires that were rejected. Again, if this was uh, supposed to be a humanitarian intervention, uh, whether or not they believed Gaddafi would, um, you know, hold himself to any agreed upon ceasefire, they didn't even give him give him a chance. They they rejected it. The African Union put put forth another ceasefire opportunity uh, that was based on the you know what, what was being called for in secure. I'm sorry, in the resolution 1973. I mean, that would have been the humanitarian thing to do, was at least give it an opportunity. Right. All right, hold it right there, y'all. we got to take this break. We'll be right back with Jeff Bachman. He's a professor at American University and uh, wrote this piece, Revisiting the Humanitarian Intervention in Libya at CommonDreams.org. It's a really good one. Go check it out. We'll be right back.
you hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show here. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Jeff Bachman. He's got this article at CommonDreams.org. We're running it on Antiwar.com today as well. Revisiting the humanitarian intervention in Libya. Well, we're linking to it. I mean, we just lifted it. Uh, revisiting the humanitarian intervention in Libya. And at the break there, you were talking about the many ceasefires. And I guess I would... uh. Uh, try to allow you to get back to that if you could, Jeff. You talk about uh, real efforts by the African Union to create uh, what they call a humanitarian corridor here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, South Africa put forward a proposal. Also, I mean, the the thing about the ceasefires that I find interesting is, uh, you know, the United States and NATO like uh, explicitly rejected. And I don't understand. I, I, it's hard for me to understand why they would have a say in whether to reject the ceasefire or not. Uh, you know, they went, they were authorized to use, you know, force for civilian protection. Uh, if ceasefire offers are on the table, I, I think that really should be something that's coordinated through the United Nations if we are going to have an intergovernmental organization uh, that's supposed to maintain international peace and security. But instead, U.S. and NATO um, rejected these ceasefire, which, I, again, I think plays into uh, what I'm arguing is that this is a war of aggression. They chose not to take these ceasefire opportunities, or at least to call Qaddafi's bluff if they thought that he would ultimately violate them. Yeah. Well, and of course, one of the major problems about getting to the bottom of any of these things is that there's no real partisan interest in it, because, you know, all the Rubios of the Republican Party, of course, supported the Libya war. I guess Cruz didn't, but he doesn't want to make a campaign issue out of it now for whatever reason, and Trump claims he was good on it, but actually demanded war in Libya at the time, uh, when you go back to the record. So there's basically no one who really wants to go after what happened here, maybe Trump to a certain degree, but he doesn't have any of the rest of politics behind him on that, right? There's nobody in Congress wants to hold these hearings or anything like that, because no, this was just the Democrats <laughs> acting like the Republicans here. Right. I mean, without a, someone like Dennis Kucinich, who... Uh, you know, was very vocally opposed to this uh, and was, you know, involved in hearings, uh, you know, especially when we started invoking the War Powers Act. Um, yeah, there's really, you know, I, I mean, Hillary Clinton still gets to um, claim that, you know, Libya, the intervention was a success. And, you know, just to, to throw out a few other names, I don't think we can talk about those behind this and coaxing Obama into this without also mentioning Samantha Power and Susan Rice, mm-hmm. uh, who were also very active in pushing for this intervention. Mm-hmm. And Gail Smith as well, right? She she hardly ever gets the headlines, but she's one of the screeching Valkyries of war up there. It's funny the way everybody always says, well, of course, you know, the women obviously will be the doves when, in fact, they all seem to be having a contest to prove what right-wingers they are. If you go back to, and there's multiple reporting about this, it's almost kind of unbelievable in a way if you think of it like a skit where in the Oval Office they really had the meeting where all the women were on one side baying for blood 
and all of the men, including the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all of them were saying, don't do it. And Obama sided with Hillary and Samantha Power and Susan Rice over the Republican. And just think of the political excuse there. Hey, my Republican Secretary of Defense warned me not to do it. That's all he needs to protect his right flank there. Gates said don't do it. But instead he goes for it anyway, listening to these... Well, I don't know. What are they? Are they true believers in this R2P thing? Are they just front men for Lockheed? Or Where do these people come from? I think uh, one, one quick thing I would know, you know, in terms of no-fly zone in Libya and also, you know, in Syria, the Department of Defense and, you know, the Pentagon have basically said that you can't, that you can't just provide a no-fly zone without actually, you know, something steamrolling into essentially a war because uh, to enforce that no-fly zone would be, you know, you'd, you'd have to shoot down potentially, say, Syrian planes or Libyan planes, and that, of course, would constitute an act of war. Um, you know, the, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, it, it, I think it's really more uh, a neoliberal agenda type thing. Um, you know, there's Samantha Power, of course, has um, A Problem from Hell, uh, her book on genocide, um, you know, and it's all based around war for human rights. And, you know, there are people out there like Mary Ellen O'Connell, who's a law professor at Notre Dame, who uh, is big on the peace agenda and t- and actually talked a lot about how, you know, the intervention in Libya actually um, probably caused more harm than good in the sense that, you know, had Qaddafi just been, you know, won the civil war, it would have been over very quickly. Uh, instead, by dragging it out, more people died on both sides of the, the civil war, as well as obviously civilians who got caught up in, in, in the civil war. Um, and we're you know, just it, at the end of the first quarter. Where this human thing. rights can be can be you know protected through bombing campaigns. Uh, you know, Kosovo was you know maybe the first example in 1999, where it's like we are going to we're not going to put any of our people at risk. We're just going to drop bombs, and that's going to protect human rights. Right, and it's interesting in that one they at least claimed lied, but claimed that a hundred thousand people had been killed. And then in this case, they said, well, 100,000 people will be killed. Trust us. Right, right, right. And I mean, you know, even the numbers, the numbers that they were saying before the intervention happened were extremely inflated. I mean, at this point, there is actually a New York Times article probably from like September of October 2011 that said, like, where are all the dead bodies? And, you know, not to trivialize those who were killed, but they're saying that the total number of people killed was probably between five and 10,000 during the, entire, the entirety of the uh, uprising and then the intervention, whereas they were claiming over 1,000 people killed within the first you know, few days of the, uh, of the uprising. Mm-hmm. So I mean, numbers were very inflated. And that, that actually brings you know, up another quote from the piece that I wrote. You know, in the New York Times, again, four days after you know, Resolution 1973 was authorized, uh, David Kirkpatrick wrote that the rebels feel no loyalty to the truth in shaping their propaganda, making vastly inflated claims of Gaddafi's barbaric behavior. I mean, again, these things we knew very early on, um, but it never entered into the, the, the mainstream narrative. And I think that's really uh, problematic. When U.S. foreign policy issues are the topic of discussion, the, you know, the primary mainstream media can can bring up in a story things like that, but then all the other stories, you know, it totally omit that from them. Right. And so it, it becomes a form of propaganda, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's just like Jeffrey Goldberg's piece where he starts out saying Assad did the sarin attack, Assad did the sarin attack, and all through the article he says Assad did the sarin attack, and then, oh, here's this one little anecdote where the director of national intelligence told the president, I refuse to stand by that assertion. 
oh, okay, thanks. But meanwhile, Assad did the sarin attack, Assad did the sarin attack. <laughs> you know, same as always. Right, right. Um, but yeah, and so the other thing is this, is that we also know from all the reporting at the time that there hardly was a civil war at all. It was Western special forces and air power and a few Al-Qaeda guys on the ground fighting this war. The guys from, uh, you know, the Libyan veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and Ansar al-Sharia and JSOC. They were the ones who were fighting this war. So, you know, the, and, and that's even in the, in the emails as well. There's, you know, even at the time, the reporters calling in from the front on this show were saying, there's not really any rebels around. <laughs> there's more reporters than rebels on the front lines here, you know? Yeah. And, and as we know, those who were, you know, fighting, um, or who NATO was supporting were committing crimes throughout the duration and, and then, in the immediate aftermath, so that I think that's telling as well. Uh, you know, Doctors Without Borders in January of 2012 left Libya um, because basically elements of the rebels were bringing them people who they had tortured, and then having Doctors Without Borders give them medical attention, and then they'd take them and torture them again. Doctors Without Borders realized, wait, we just we just aided this person, and now this person's back with you know similar physical. Um, ailments. So, you know, there was the summary executions that, you know, that you mentioned from the email. I mean, you know, another uh, quick note in terms of how early we knew this, uh, David Zucano uh, from the LA Times had written in on March 24th, rebel forces are detaining anyone suspected of serving or assisting Qaddafi regime, locking them up in the same prisons once used to detain and torture Qaddafi's opponents. And he goes on to talk about how it seems like they're using the same methods that they were supposedly fighting against. Um, and again, so that was a week into the uh, the intervention itself. And yet we continued to support these these rebels. Yeah. Now, I think the miracle here is that the massive invasion and staying forever that Hillary Clinton promises to begin as soon as she's sworn in, she invoked, uh, of course, Germany, Japan, and Korea as the Libya model to follow uh, just the other day. And uh, But the it, it seems like a miracle has taken this long. Like, I thought, well, geez, once they... It was obvious that if they get rid of Gaddafi, they're destroying the entire state, what exists of a real state in Libya, and they're going to have to start over from scratch. And the only way to do that is to invade and occupy the place in purple-fingered elections and build up an army and this exact same, you know, Iraq-style catastrophe. And yet it looks like that's the way they're going now because they fought a war for... Al-Qaeda guys who now declare their loyalty to the Islamic State. And so now they're gearing up and already doing missions there and are gearing up for more in Libya right now. So we're only at the end of Chapter 1 of this thing, it looks like, Jeff. That's right. We're, we're militarily involved in Libya again. And, you know, after the intervention and Gaddafi was executed, we wiped our hands of it. There was calls for investigations. There was calls for greater support and help in uh, build the capacity in Libya. Uh, if I recall correctly, some of the things that were said in response were, you know, the National Transitional Council would ask us if they want us to do those things. So suddenly, you know, sovereignty didn't matter when it was time to overthrow Gaddafi. But then once he was overthrown, it was like, well, I mean, we have to we have to give them their sovereignty and let them figure it out themselves. And of course, as you mentioned, we know how that turned out. Yeah, well, and I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have expected them to do a better job of it than the Libyans that they left it to, as far as that goes. But it just goes to show that you know their plan was well, it'll probably work out or something, and or if not, then that's fine too. We'll just have another war and and go save the people that we put in danger. 
Right. Just as success was initially, you know, called when we deposed Saddam Hussein, you know, just as, you know, as soon as Gaddafi was dead, it was like, yep, that, that's a success. I mean, you know, there's that uh, footage of Hillary Clinton uh, laughing, saying something like, we came, we saw, he died, or, you know, yep. or something like that, mm-hmm. making essentially like a joke out of, um, you know, the situation. Yep. And and tens of thousands are dead since then, at least. All right. Listen, I'm sorry I kept you way over time. I got to go. You got to go. But thank you very much for your time, Jeff. Appreciate it. That's great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. All right. That's Jeff Bachman. Read this one. It's really good. It's at Common Dreams, revisiting the humanitarian intervention in Libya. Will Grigg in one sec. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Just barely made that deadline by the skin of my teeth there. Went overtime with Jeff Bachman. That's a good interview. I like that guy. Great article, Common Dreams again, uh, Jeff Bachman on the humanitarian ha-ha war against Libya. Uh, the last one, and a little bit of the next one. All right, uh, next up, it's our friend Will Grigg, uh, William Norman Grigg, author of Liberty in Eclipse and the great blog Pro Libertate. That's freedominourtime.blogspot.com, freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Will? Scott, I'm doing well. It's great to be with you. Uh, very happy to have you here on the show. And, um, of course, I mean, if anyone had asked me uh, with my eyes closed, I could have told them you want the definitive account to what happened at the end of uh, the uh, Lavoie Finicum um, highway chase and all of that. Um, at the Well, the whole dang story, I'd have sent them to you anyway. And this is, uh, you have a piece here about um she's see i'm screwing up because i can't remember if i'm supposed to say idaho or what state this was in was it, it was in, in washington oregon. state in oregon it was in right. oregon yes. right. see this is why i'm botching the introduction here i didn't pay close enough attention to this story at the time when it happened <laughs> sorry about that but i got you uh on the most important part of it and um and that is uh well i guess uh, different police agencies now pitted against each other in and a little bit of truth coming out is that it I think that there is reason to believe that's happening here. The definitive account has yet to be written because many of the key details have been redacted from the 360-page incident report, which I've been reading over the last couple of days. And also because the FBI is protected by privilege and by operational security protocols that the Oregon State Police weren't able to penetrate. One of the really interesting details in that incident report about the January 26th shooting of Lavoie Finnegan Baron. U.S. Highway 395 in Oregon, is the fact that they had two separate communication systems. You had seven SWAT team members from the Oregon State Police on the side, and they were under the operation, operational command and control of the so-called hostage rescue team, which is a somewhat ironic title for a group that is consistently involved in killing people rather than saving them. And but the that's HRT, the FBI, the HRT. Exactly. The, yes, the HRT is the FBI's proprietary SWAT team, and they had both tactical and operational control of the operation. They were there for the purpose of arresting Ammon Bundy and a handful of others who had been involved in the protest occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. 
and I thought that it was fascinating that they were on two separate communication circuits. The Oregon State Police had their own police band radio that they were communicating through, but they couldn't communicate with the FBI. And my theory at this point is that they were actually operating on two separate sets of rules of engagement. The HRT was there for the nominal purpose of arresting Ammon Bundy and Lavoie Finnegan and Brian Palmer and a handful of others who had been traveling to a town about 100 miles away called John Day for the purpose of holding a town hall meeting. But the way that they set up this encounter anticipated that they were going to be dealing with non-cooperation on the part of Mr. Finnegan. They knew who would be part of this two-vehicle convoy. One was a Jeep Wrangler. Mr. Finnegan was driving a Dodge Ram pickup. And they knew that the driver of the Jeep Wrangler was most likely going to be cooperative because there's very strong evidence that Mark McConnell who's been identified as one of the organizers of the protest and as a bodyguard for Ammon Bundy, there's very strong evidence that he was actually a cooperating informant with the FBI. Witness the fact that in any operation of this kind where there is a CI, who is the first to get arrested and the first to be let go? It's the CI. That's what happened with Mr. McConnell. He was arrested at the roadblock because he cooperated, and in the report that has been issued in the investigations, it's pretty clear that they anticipated cooperation from the driver of the Jeep Wrangler, and his name is redacted from the report. That's another very important piece of evidence. So he was cooperative. He was taken into custody and immediately released, and within a day, what did he do? He created and disseminated a video in which he accused Finnicum of precipitating his own demise by charging at the OSP officers who shot him. And that's something that is not validated by the video that's subsequently been released after the inevitable finding that the shooting was justified. But what seems to have happened here is that they had anticipated that that vehicle, which was following Mr. Finnegan's vehicle, was going to stop at the first section of this of this encounter. There were two different roadblocks that have actually, there wasn't a roadblock, there was a traffic stop that was arranged at one point, then a certain fraction of a mile down the road, there was a roadblock where you had two vehicles forming a V and a third vehicle behind them. It was anticipated, I think, that the Wrangler would stop and that Finnicum would not cooperate. And after Finnicum, at the first traffic stop, said he was going to John Day, he was going to go meet with Sheriff Glenn Palmer of Grant County, and that if they were going to have to stop, if they were going to stop him, they're going to have to shoot him. At that point, Officer number two, whose testimony composes about the first 60 pages of this report, said he got on the radio and said, not cooperating, we're going to have to shoot him. And that seems to me to have been the anticipated outcome, because the FBI had detailed intelligence as to who was going to be in those vehicles, what their disposition was in terms of submitting to law enforcement, what arms they would be carrying the destination and so forth. They've been given detailed intelligence, most likely by Mr. McConnell. So... Finnegan proceeded up the road, Highway 395, being pursued by two vehicles, one of which was a SWAT vehicle operated by the HRT. And when he got to the roadblock, he was traveling an estimated speed varying from 50 to 70 miles an hour, according to the police witnesses. And the, there were gunshots being flung at the driver's side of this vehicle as he approached the roadblock. And that reminds me a little bit of what was called the escalation of force protocol in occupied Iraq, where people who didn't stop at military roadblocks or military, military checkpoints were treated as hostiles and engaged for the purpose of taking them out as a threat. That's a different protocol from what domestic law enforcement agencies are supposed to operate under when they're 
maintaining a roadblock. The objective of a roadblock that the law enforcement agency sets up is to take somebody into custody so that he or she can be made subject to the criminal justice system. That wasn't what was going on there at that roadblock. <clears throat> there was, according to the investigation, there were three shots that were fired at the vehicle before it encountered the roadblock. <clears throat> Mr. Finnegan veered to the left, missing a series of spike strips that had been deployed on the highway for the purpose of slowing him down and forcing him to stop. He plowed into a snowbank and he emerged from the vehicle with his hands in the air. And it was at this point that a as yet unidentified HRT operator took two shots at him. This and is this is now according to the state police report, you're saying? Yes, it is. The state police, after several weeks, not forget, not several weeks, but after several iterations of, of questioning with the HRT, finally was able to, to verify that there had been two shots that they couldn't account for in terms of the type of ammo that was used and uh, the trajectories of the shots. They finally decided by process of elimination, it must have been an, F an FBI HRT operator who flung those shots at Mr. Finnegan as he emerged from the vehicle, attempted to kill him. Once again, that's not a law enforcement protocol. He was no longer an active threat. He emerged with his hands in the air, and yet there was an attempt to kill him. What's really interesting here, Scott, is that in the incident report, this is something that's been reported in the press in the Oregonian newspaper yesterday, there's mention of the fact that the shell casings were never found and that the extended video of this encounter, the video is actually over an hour long that the FBI had, had compiled using what was most likely a remote piloted drone aircraft. About an hour and a half of footage was taken. About 26 minutes of it was released to the public after the shooting and the couple of days immediately after that event. But in the extended video, there's actually a, se a sequence in which the five HRT operators are shown huddling, and then one of them reach reaches down and collects the shell casings and leaves the scene. Covering up the evidence of unlawful shots taken in an attempt to kill Mr. Finnegan. Well, all right, we got to stop right there to take this break. It's the great Will Grigg, William Norman Grigg, Freedom in Our Time. Blogspot. Com. Finnegan's Wake is the piece, and we'll be right back. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Will Grigg. Thank goodness, man. It's been way too long. Uh, kind of a sorry occasion to speak. Uh, the, I know. The killing of this guy, uh, Lavoy Finnicum. And so there's new footage that's been released. There's footage that you're talking about. We ended with uh, there they are apparently conspiring. And then one of them actually picks up the shell casings from the ground. This is the... The uh, Ruby Ridge and, well, half Waco. of the Ruby Ridge killers yeah. and the Waco killers from, not the ATF, but the FBI side from April 19th. Um, the the FBI's hostage rescue team, a new generation of them, I guess. It probably wasn't Lon Horiuchi taking the pot shots this time uh, like he did Almost in both of those not, cases. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so the deal is this, uh, real quick, the new news is that when this guy got out of his truck, according to the state police you're instructing us here, Will, when he got out of his truck with his hands up, 
the hostage rescue team then took two shots at him. Yes. And then what happened, Will? He was approached by two OSP troopers, one of whom emerged from the tree line with a firearm trained on Finnegan. The other one came up from behind him with a taser. According to the instant report, the second OSP trooper was not carrying a firearm. He had a so-called less lethal munition, a taser. It's not known for certain whether he was actually hit with a taser, but there was at some point in this encounter a gesture that was seen as a classic furtive movement in the direction of a 9mm handgun that was later found, allegedly, in the left-hand coat pocket of Mr. Finnegan. And as he looked at the officer who was holding the taser and made that gesture, he was shot three times in the back by the other OSP trooper, and those shots were ruled justified by Attorney Dan Norris. He's the district attorney from Malheur County who's brought on as a special prosecutor there in Deschutes County. I'm very well familiar with uh, Mr. Norris. He's an immensely corrupt person, and I'm saying that on the record. He, interestingly enough, is not running for re-election in Malheur County. I'm wondering if he's going to be given some kind of a federal sinecure before the end of the year. But the thing that I find most provocative about this, Scott, is that there were several less lethal options that are listed among the arsenal of the OSP troopers who were involved in this operation. I still think they were operating on a different set of instructions than the FBI's HRT. And as I mentioned, the HRT was communicating over a different frequency. There were commingling of FBI and HRT operators in each of the different units that were put together. There were 12 of them all together. There were seven OSP troopers, and then there were five members of the FBI's SWAT team. And you had different little teams where they intermingled people from the two agencies, but in order to communicate with the FBI, the OSP had to go through an FBI operator on the scene. Mm-hmm. And so after the shooting takes place, and bear in mind, Finnegan has been shot at twice uh, from what would have been his right at the time he emerged from the driver's side of his truck. And his natural reaction upon being shot at is to assume that they're not trying to arrest him, they're trying to kill him. And if you're a law enforcement officer at this point, if you're a certified peace officer, your objective is to take the guy into custody, not to kill him on the scene, if that's at all possible. But at this point, it probably became pretty clear to Mr. Finnegan that they were just simply going to kill him where he stood, which is one of the reasons why he died on his feet, saying, you're going to have to shoot me, you're going to have to shoot me. That apparently had been the default assumption all along. After this took place, there were, there were a number of gas rounds fired into the truck, and a number of other uh, flashbangs, so-called less lethal munitions, fired into the truck. And you had two women in the truck, one of whom was 18 years old. They were panicked, they were terrified, and they were being painted by laser sights. Those laser sights were emanating from rifles in the hands of HRT operators, according to the incident report. So you had the OSP trying to flush these people out of the truck, but at the same time, they couldn't move because they realized that they were being targeted by people who were holding assault rifles. And that reminded me a little bit of what happened at Mount Carmel, where these people were being driven out of their sanctuary after a six-hour-long toxic gas attack. And as they ran out, they were gunned down by hostage rescue team operators and trigger pullers from Delta, the Delta Force, so-called Delta Force, which, of course, is the federal uh, special operations group from which the HRT was calved off a couple of decades ago. Mm -hmm. And... The other thing I find interesting about this, Scott, is that Finnegan was not attended to. He was seen as down. One of the officers who witnessed this said, at this point, it was clear he wasn't a danger. They didn't do anything about tending to him and rendering medical aid. 
there was one medic on the scene. He was a member of the HRT. But after they had arranged the arrest of the occupants of the truck, the HRT took control of the scene where Finnegan had fallen, and their first priority was not to render aid but to handcuff him. He either died course, yeah. before they arrived at the scene or he died with his hands uh, zip-tied behind his back. And you're saying and the medic it, just stood there and did not render aid? Just stood there and did nothing, exactly. All right, now. The, oh, go ahead. The, one, one last very important point here sure. is that at this point, the HRT is in control of the scene. They had operational control of it for over 90 minutes before detectives showed up to start investigating the shooting. One of the officers, officer number five, said that he actually took a look at Finnegan, and uh, he said that uh, as when they were providing first aid, quote-unquote, a bullet that had mushroomed as we were lifting, not me, as they were lifting his shirt up, kind of fell out onto the snow. And I remember, remember thinking it looked like a, a 556 round. It was perfectly mushroomed. It was on the snow underneath Mr. Finnecum and was pointed out to other guys there. And the questioner said, you don't know who may have collected that? And the officer said, I do not. So there is a missing spent round not accounted for here. Hmm. In addition to the two copper-colored rounds that were seen by another officer but disappeared in the 90-minute interval before the detectives from the OSP showed up to investigate the crime scene. So the HRT went and sanitized the scene, and that's obstructing an investigation. That's a felony in any state, in any county. And just to make sure I understand what you're saying here, that would have been around from one of their rifles as opposed to one of the handguns used by the state police on the scene. If it had had been an OSP round, it would have been accounted for. They would have been able to say, oh, that's a round that was fired by... One of them fired by the officer right. uh, who shot him in the back, but that that round disappeared. It was never accounted for. It disappeared. The only people who could have taken that round from the scene would have been the HRT, because otherwise it would have been accounted for by the OSP team that showed up about an hour later. All right. Now, uh, let's go back a little bit here about a couple of things. It seems like from the footage, and I guess if you could remark if there's anything in the new footage that you think uh, taken on the phone from inside the uh, the truck that you think is uh, revelatory, I'd like to hear it, but I, I couldn't really make out anything important in there. Maybe maybe the gunshot hitting the truck is in there if I had paid yeah. better attention. Um, but then, so I want to go to, you know, from the aerial footage, hey, waistband, Your Honor, he reached for his waistband, and yeah. it's pretty clear from far away, high in the sky, that his hand sure do drop towards his side, and it mm-hmm. seems like if I was to play the devil's advocate, at least on the part of the state police, it seems like perhaps maybe they didn't think they did have a choice but to shoot him if he was reaching for a gun. I mean, he should actually have a chance to begin to draw it or something, I think, before they kill him. But that ended up to me. But close enough yeah. for government work. But anyway, the, the real point being that it seems that the hostage rescue team had put those state police even if you take that much into, you know, for granted, the HRT had put the state police in that position by firing on this guy when he was surrendering. As you said, he got out with his hands up. Then yes. they fired on him. Is that right in the chronology? Do we know exactly. that for a fact? And then he reached for, for his waistband, for his gun, and then they killed him. Yes. And it's possible that he was hit with something and he was reacting to being hit as well. The perception of the people in the car was that he had been hit and that he had been injured and that he was instinctively reacting or reflexive reacting to being hit. And that very well Uh, could be the round that you're just talking about that's missing, is the one fired from further away by the HRT at that point. Exactly. It it could have been a ricochet round that hit him and that caused that reaction. But I agree with your overall perception of this. My working theory is that 
the HRT arrange things to where the OSP is going to be taking the fall for what happens here, assuming that misconduct would be found. They're being investigated by the Justice Department for whatever solace that might provide people who are interested in actual justice. But the thing that I find interesting about the circumstances of these revelations, Scott, I've not seen the footage. Nobody else has seen the footage, but descriptions of it was leaked to Les Zates of the Oregonian newspaper by unnamed law enforcement sources. What that suggests to me, cynic that I am, is that the OSP, having seen this evidence, is trying to make sure that they're controlling the narrative here rather than taking the full blame for what the HRT did. They recognize that they have been used as a cat spot here. They're being used as what Nietzsche called the stolen teeth, and they don't like that role. Yeah. Well, it's the only hope we got (laughs) by design, (laughs) I guess, is you get these government agencies fighting among each other, and then supposedly they're to leave us alone a little bit more than they otherwise would. Yeah, <laughs> Although in this case, we're talking about a dead man laying in the snow, so guess not. One um, other thing about this story that really sure. infuriates me, Scott. Mm-hmm. They were headed to John Day where they're going to meet with the sheriff of Grant County. In other words, they were going to be meeting with a certified peace officer in the state right. of Oregon mm-hmm. who was considered politically unreliable. They kept him completely out of the loop because he was regarded as a security leader. And that's actually and just, something that, you know, I did learn from that footage from inside yeah. the truck, was he's yelling out the door, hey, we're going to meet, meet with cops down the street. So Exactly. And, Scott, just an hour and a half ago, the Oregon Public Broadcasting Network announced that the Justice Department is investigating Sheriff Palmer now. It's much more likely that he's going to be hit with criminal charges, most likely some kind of an exotic conspiracy charge than that these two these hrt operators are going to be prosecuted for felonious obstruction of an official investigation you know i wonder if the fact that there was no accountability whatsoever after ruby ridge and waco and god knows who else these goons have killed uh since then has anything to do with them thinking they can get away with this now will they've been staging operations of the sort in iraq and in afghanistan and in Pakistan, and in Somalia, and in Yemen. They use exactly the same model. They use exactly the same protocols overseas that they used in in Deschutes County, Oregon. It won't be long before it's Reaper drones and Hellfire missiles. I think that's a logical surmise, yes. You you give up your empire or you live under it, and so we chose to live under it. <laughs> I don't know who's we, but apparently it includes you and me, no matter how bad we protest, Will. It would appear so. Yep. All right, so now listen, um, at least now, I'm sorry, I'm keeping you over just a minute here, but um, if, uh, if, if now the cops are fighting about this, uh, is that, I mean, that could increase our chances a little bit, right? If the HRT is is hanging out the, the state police to dry so bad on this issue that they're already fighting back, then, I mean, obviously it's too yeah. late for him, but, uh, you know, might yeah. there actually be some prosecutions of the guilty or some kind of liability for the survivors or anything, you know? Well, sometimes the friction that occurs in conflicts between bureaucracies is the only thing that will light a spark that will eventually illuminate the secrets that are being kept. I think that's something that we can count on. There are going to be other disclosures dislodged here that will at least let us know in fuller scope what happened there on Highway 395. As to whether there are prosecutions, there should be prosecutions. As a matter of fact, Shane Johnson, the sheriff of Deschutes County, really should file a criminal complaint against the HRT operators 
who committed, allegedly, felonious obstruction within his county. He's not going to do this. This is a guy who is dealing with his own huge forfeiture scandal related to his involvement as a duly deputized drug warrior uh-huh. on the order of a couple of hundred thousand dollars that went missing from their uh, forfeiture plunder fund. And then I mentioned D.A. Dan Norris from Nahir County. Nahir County is facing literally millions of dollars in civil liability from similar misconduct arising in several cases. Yep. So these people are corrupted and hence compromised. And I think that the actual hope here is that there's going to be enough ambient frustration and outrage over what was done here and the a lot of that outrage is going to be uh, emerging from within the ranks of the OSP, and you'll start getting defectors in place speaking with people like the Oregonian newspaper and other media outlets, mm-hmm. and hopefully that'll propagate itself. Um, that's a slender read upon which to repose our hopes, but perhaps it's the strongest we have available. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's one of these every single day, and especially at your yeah. blog, but it's another great lesson of just how insidious all this corruption is. You let this guy and this guy get away with this and this. When it comes down to it, now they're the only ones you can count on to hold these others accountable for the horrible things that they did. And so good luck with that. And the whole damn thing is rotten, man. At what point is the whole damn thing rotten, you know? I'm sorry. I always curse when I'm talking with you. I don't know why. Understandable, as, as Nietzsche said, it's rotten down to its bowels. Oh, that's why. It's because we're always talking about the cops. That's why. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, listen, I love you, man. It's great to talk with you again, Will. I really appreciate your uh, efforts along these lines, of course, as always. That means so much to me, Scott. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right, y'all. That is the great Will Grigg, William Norman Grigg, Freedom in Our Time dot blogspot dot com for his great blog pro libertate and uh this is the so far definitive take on Finnicum's murder at the hands uh well killing at the hands of the state police um at the prov- provocation of the FBI Finnicum's wake pro uh pro libertate freedom in our time dot blogspot dot com